Good afternoon. Thank you to those of you who are joining us here in person. Thank you for those of you who are watching us online from around the world. And to those of you who will watch this video in the days and weeks to come. I'm Rajul Pandya Loach. I'm Director for Communications and Public Affairs at IFPRI. And I'm very pleased to welcome you to this event on the changing challenges of hidden hunger, micronutrients within the nutrition and development landscape. We are co-organizing this with the Micronutrient Forum, and we are very proud at IFPRI to host the Micronutrient Forum, and we are delighted to be a gold-level sponsor of the Micronutrient Forum's fifth global conference in Bangkok in late March. We at IFPRI plan to participate in full force at this important event with more than a dozen IFPRI researchers speaking, hosting side events, and the like. As part of the preparation for that event, we are particularly delighted to organize the event today here at IFPRI, and we have a wonderful program lined up for all of you. We will begin today with Saskia Osendarp, Executive Director of the Micronutrient Forum, delivering opening remarks, and thereafter we'll have a panel discussion. Let me invite Saskia to come up and deliver her remarks. Thank you very much, Rajul, and uh, thank you to you and IFPRI for uh, providing us the opportunity to discuss um, these, uh, the changing challenges of hidden hunger with you today. Uh, and thank you also for hosting the Micronutrients Forum. So hidden hunger um, or deficiencies um, in essential micronutrients are a global problem. Micronutrients, vitamins and minerals that our body needs in only tiny amounts are very important and critical for growth, health and development. And deficiencies of micronutrients can have lifelong uh, consequences. So micronutrients, for instance, micronutrients such as uh, folate and iron are known to impact uh, throughout all stages of early fetal development, influencing organ development, endocrine programming, as well as um, uh, epigenetic programming of gene expression, and this impacts lifelong disease risks. And uh, deficiencies of B vitamins and iron, iron and B vitamins are important for brain development and that have implica has implications for a child's development later in life, for school performances and finally for adult productivity. So an estimated 2 billion people worldwide suffer from micronutrient deficiencies, which we also call hidden hunger because the immediate consequences of micronutrient deficiencies are not always visible. Um, and uh, poor diets um, result in micronutrient deficiencies. So food systems that promote um, the inclusion of energy-dense obesogenic foods uh, that are uh, rich in energy but not uh, rich in, in nutrients result in poor diets and, and these can be an important uh, cause of all forms of malnutrition including micronutrient deficiencies. However, in addition to poor diets being an, an underlying or being a direct cause of all forms of malnutrition, um, the physiological stage of being overweight or undernourished in itself also uh, can result in micronutrient deficiencies. And these uh, conditions, overweight, undernutrition and micronutrient deficiencies can occur in the same individuals, in the same families, in the same countries, the so-called triple burden of malnutrition. So the promotion of um, healthy diets and the promotion of breastfeeding are important strategies to prevent micronutrient deficiencies. But in addition to that, 
we have evidence-based micronutrient-specific interventions such as fortification, biofortification, home fortification, and supplementation that are important strategies as well, particularly for certain population groups that have high needs, such as pregnant women or small children, or in contexts where the required shifts um, in the dietary habits that need to happen in order to consume healthy diets, such as, for instance, increasing the amount of animal source foods, are either not um, affordable or not available for the poor, or they put a too high burden on the climate and environment. Now, despite the enormous possibilities for impact, micronutrient interventions at the moment remain underused. And they are the most cost-effective investments that we have um, in global health. That's um, known since 2008 when the Copenhagen consensus came out. And later research from John Hoddenet and <coughs> colleagues here in IFPRI demonstrated that a package of interventions, including micronutrient interventions that are required to scale up nutrition, have a, re have a 16 times return on investment. And yet investments um, for micronutrient-specific interventions um, remain low. Uh, ODA funding since 2015 on these interventions has gone down. The current global challenges that exist in nutrition and other development goals, they call, they call for integrated uh, multi-sectoral uh, strategies that, that are implemented across the food system. And these food systems need to lead to, to healthy and uh, sustainable diets for all. And micronutrients are a key element of healthy diets. Um, and we know that the different stages, at every different stage of the food system, is, uh, that's impacting the micronutrient quality of the diet. Um, but we lack still a basic understanding of exactly how micronutrients are um, um, impacting the quality of the diet at every single stage of the food system. And yet there are opportunities to improve micronutrient nutrition along this entire food system. Agriculture, for instance, delivers micronutrients into the food system through the development of nutritious crops or healthy soils. Um, during, the, um, during the stage of food processing, micronutrients can be added to food uh, um, in fortification. And in markets and retails, as well as um, in the homes during storage and cooking at home, um, the prevention of perishing and food waste can help to retain micronutrients in the food. And finally, at the family table, healthy eating habits and good breastfeeding practices can help to improve micronutrient intakes of all members of the family. So with today's rapid shifts that we see occurring in food access and in dietary habits and climate change, um, we see that the problem of micronutrient deficiencies is growing and is uh, also occurring now in contexts where there is um, a food, where there is a um, situation of food access, and this um, proves to be a new challenge for the global research and um, development community. And yet, we only poorly understand at the moment the complex interaction between micronutrient nutrition, climate change, and sustainable food systems. We know that the climate is impacting what we uh, that the climate is impacting what we eat, and we know that what we eat is impacting climate change. Um, but we don't know to what extent climate change affects 
the dietary intakes of populations, and finally nutritional status. Recent research from, um, from Harvard that was published uh, last year in Nature showed that the negative impact of increased CO2 emissions uh, on nutritional quality of food crops can actually be quite substantial. Um, and estimates are that uh, under rising CO2 two levels, many food crops um, can have iron and zinc contents that are um, reduced by 3 to 17 percent compared to the current conditions. And this could then lead potentially to an additional 170 million people to be zinc deficient as compared to current conditions. And while we're, while we're just about to understand the complexity of these issues and the interrelationships between the, all the forms of malnutrition, stunting, overweight and micronutrient deficiencies, we lack key evidence on micronutrient status. Um, the data gap in micronutrient deficiency is due to the fact that countries do not routinely collect information on micronutrient status in their large-scale surveys, such as anemia or, state or uh, zinc status or vitamin A status. And, um, uh, and, it's, and it's a burden on, on countries to collect uh, these data. And this has implications for effective uh, policy setting and effective targeting of interventions. However, it should not be a reason to not act. Um, there is a renewed focus on micronutrients is required, um, and this focus will lead, hopefully, to um, more investments in the collection of data of, uh, of uh, micronutrient status in populations. And it will also help the global uh, community to work towards the elimination of malnutrition in all its forms by 2030. So at the upcoming Micronutrient uh, Forum Conference in Bangkok, which we will co-convene uh, with the second global summit on food fortification, we will discuss these issues and the complex interactions between climate change, micronutrient deficiencies, changing food systems, and and uh, eating habits. Um, this will be a gathering, as Raju already um, indicated, of, uh, of a, more than a thousand participants from academia, from the um, policy, policy setting, from governments, from uh, program uh, implementation. And we welcome you all to join us in Thailand next month. Thank you very much. Saskia, thank you so much for that overview, giving us a background. Please join us here, and I ask all the panelists to join me here in the front, and we'll have a brief conversation with the panelists and then with all of you uh, in the um, audience here in the room as well as online. So we have a wonderful panel, and you'll get different perspectives from all of them, including our colleague Roland, who joins us virtually uh, from UNICEF. So each of the panelists to kick us off has been asked to address the same question. So you'll have a chance to hear different perspectives from them all, not to put challenges on them, uh, but each of them has been asked to address the fundamental question of what do you see as new developments globally that may help to stimulate progress in tackling micronutrient deficiencies? And this question comes very logically from how Saskia ended her presentation. So let me begin first with Marie Ruel. Marie is the Director for Poverty, Health and Nutrition Division at IFPRI. And Marie, we look forward to your brief remarks. What do you see as the big challenges, or big opportunities? It, it, I mean, there are really big challenges, but what I thought I was asked to talk about was what is promising. <laughs> so what I find is promising is the fact that as 
we saw in Saskia's presentation today, um, when we talk about food systems and the role of food systems in agriculture in terms of improving nutrition nowadays, we have shifted the focus to talk about improving diets, improving diets, making diets healthier and more sustainable. And that's a big change from the, the last, I don't know, 50 years, where the focus was always on feeding the planet, the planet enough food. We still hear today we need to feed 9 billion people, we need enough calories, we need enough um, food, quantity of food, and now I like the fact that the, the policy dialogue has finally started to shift to talk about micronutrients in the sense of nutritious diets, because if you have uh, adequate micronutrients in your diet, you're likely to have a good uh, micronutrient status. Um, the Lancet series, the recent Lancet series on the double burden of malnutrition uh, also makes the point that poor quality diets are a major common driver of all forms of malnutrition. So we're talking about micronutrient deficiencies, but also stunting in children and wasting and underweight in, in, women, in, in women and overweight. They all have poor diet quality. And then the, second, the third paper of the series talks about 10 double duty actions which allow to, or which are thought through with the aim of addressing multiple forms of malnutrition, not just one like we've done in the past. We, we either work on stunting or we work on obesity. Now we're talking about addressing multiple forms of malnutrition through multi-sectoral actions in agriculture, in, um, in social protection, in education, in health, of course, by bringing in counseling and uh, demand, demand side interventions like counseling on healthy diets, uh, or other demand uh, creation for people to have better diets, more, more healthy diets, but also on the supply side. So these actions refer, again, to improving diets, improving the production of nutritious food, as well as the consumption of nutritious foods that make up a healthy diet. Thank you. Marie, thank you very much. Same question now addressed to Rob Bertram, who is Chief Scientist with the Bureau for Food Security at the United States Agency for International Development, USAID. Promising developments. Uh, thank you very much, Rajul, and good afternoon, everyone. So uh, first I'd like to observe that when we look at maps of what we already care about, which in Feed the Future is reduction in child stunting, reduction in extreme poverty, and now reduction in wasting, these are the same areas w that are contiguous where micronutrient deficiencies are concentrated. And I think this builds on the fact that this is ultimately about diet quality. Uh, and and Maurice, you know, pointed out the role of food systems, that approach there. And I think one of our challenges in this space is to make sure we can keep a focus on the vulnerable and undernourished as we tackle very complex problems that affect all of society. Um, another thing I think is a big shift here, Rajul, is that you know, we, for a long time we thought a lot about the thousand days, and those are great investments. The, they're absolutely essential. And I think it's important that we always talk about what we're trying to do, say, in food systems as a complement to those. So for example, the idea that after a thousand days, the, the children adolescent girls, the intergenerational aspects of nutrition that we know are so important, this is an opportunity that I think is growing in front of us to uh, get at these. And there's a lot of synergies 
uh, in that space between those and the thousand-day interventions. I think we need to use all the arrows in a quiver. Um, so I'm excited about uh, biofortified foods, especially if we can attach a value proposition to them. And the same thing with animal source foods, horticulture, legumes, all of these have great value propositions and are also really attractive opportunities for the rural poor where poverty and stunting are most concentrated and wasting too, even in some non-crisis areas. So, so I see a convergence here that can really pay off. I do want to flag that um, attitudes are towards science uh, are, are perhaps uh, not yet clear in terms of what, we ha what we're willing to accept in terms of our food, but I'm very heartened by Impossible Burger, which when somebody complained that it was GM because of the heme molecule in it, they said, well, so what? You know, it's really good. And so, um, so I'll say more about that in the next round. Thanks. Rob, that was tantalizing. Thank you. <laughs> Let me come to our third panelist, and that is Roland. Roland Kupka is Senior Advisor with the Nutrition Section at UNICEF. Roland, we look forward to your remarks to this question. Yes, hello everybody. It's a pleasure to be part of the panel. Sorry I couldn't be there in person. Um, I think one limiting factor in the area of micronutrients has been, as I said, we don't have very clear global goals that orient us in our work. However, I think that different groups have become much clearer to identify and work towards a North Star, so to speak, that um, helps us uh, guide our actions. So for instance, in the area of grain fortification, I think it's becoming quite clear that we should be working towards eliminating neurological tooth defects that can be prevented by folic acid supplementation, uh, uh, fortification rather, of wheat flour or maize flour Similarly, in the area of iodine, I feel the field has been able to articulate that um, the elimination of iodine deficiency at the national level is within reach. As uh, some of you may know, currently only 25 countries are iodine deficient, even though those numbers were much higher at 50 or even higher some 15 years ago. And thirdly, in the area of vitamin A supplementation, for instance, I feel we've become much clearer in knowing that how to integrate this intervention into national health systems and also how to reach the most vulnerable children with this intervention. Um, secondly, um, and this is building on Rob's point as well, I think that uh, it, many uh, actors are, have recognized the need to not only focus on young children, but also those in middle childhood and adolescence. As we know that conditions such as anemia, which have strong links to Micronutrients are a major source of disability-adjusted life years in this age group and impair also school attendance and learning. And um, at UNICEF, to observe that many, many governments have started to put in place efforts to address the burdens of malnutrition in this age group. And this has been coupled also with efforts to address uh, data gaps um, in this age group. We've seen a number of countries that have implemented surveys, such as in India, to not only look at the burden of micronutrient deficiencies and other um, burdens of malnutrition in young children, but also in school-age children and adolescents. So I, I do think that you know, with clear goals and clear investments and based on evidence, and that in the area of um, these micronutrient deficiencies, we can um, really make uh, make good progress uh, with uh, with the required focus. Roland, thank you so much, and we'll come back to you in the next round. 
Our fourth panelist is Christine Sandel. She is Senior Advocacy Specialist with the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition Gain. Christine, um, please uh, go ahead. We look forward to your remarks. Thank you very much. So I think I would also uh, call out the renewed energy and focus around food systems as a strong opportunity to really focus in um, with new energy on the link between malnutrition and um, micronutrient deficiencies and areas where how that can call our attention and coordinate our action um, around areas where the food systems, where food systems are failing, especially for the most vulnerable. Um, I think that the um, this increased attention to food systems can help to better align uh, the nutrition, um, those of us working in nutrition, with broader the broader development community, which is increasingly um, orienting around um, uh, country-owned um, priorities and plans um, and um, integrated strategies um, that, that countries themselves are, are crafting. And, and I think this is where um, the, the donor community is increasingly as well. I think that's an incredibly positive movement. And I think, um, I think that, that, that the nutrition community um, as well, um, that with a focus on food systems, can help, um, help the nutrition community to, um, to uh, join that um, join that overall trend as well. Um, I think we see this um, in the fortification space, certainly where um, the challenge of quality control and enforcement of mandatory fortification programs. Um, oftentimes, the systems that are set up are set up for fortification exclusively, or even for one specific fortified food vehicle. So you'll see in a country context where. Uh, the enforcement systems for salt iodization are separate and different from the enforcement mechanisms for wheat flour fortification. I think uh, food systems approach can help us to find new allies and to align our efforts with um, broader food quality and food control and food safety systems. And I think that will be, uh, will, will really help us to progress in terms of Im improving the quality of fortification um, and, uh, and um, optimizing the impact of, of fortification um, in low and middle income countries. And then finally, I would just mention that um, a key opportunity that is coming up is the Nutrition for Growth Summit, where food systems is an, an area of um, action in the commitment platform alongside um, universal health care and, um, and fragile and conflict affected states. And I would just note that's a really significant shift from seven years ago in 2013, where the focus was quite exclusively on stunting. So I think that's an opportunity, again, for um, um, better alignment um, and bringing more people um, together to address this challenge of micronutrient deficiencies. Christine, thank you so much. Our fifth panelist is Eric Boy. Eric is the head of nutrition at Harvest Plus. Eric, we look forward to your insights. Thank you, Rachel. For agriculture to be able to feed an additional two million, two billion people by 2050, not only productivity efficiency needs to increase, but also the quality of the food that's produced. And a lot of this food must be public goods. And this is what the international agricultural research centers do. They produce public goods uh, in, in, in contrast to private sector-owned technologies. <clears throat> so for the, uh, and so there are two things that I think are promising positive uh, developments uh, that will help transitioning into healthier 
uh, and sustainable food systems that have to do with the current reform and realignment of the International Agricultural Research Network towards one single mission uh, and more efficient investment of donor funds. And within this reform, um, the, there is one key um, activity that has to do with micronutrients, which is the mainstreaming of micronutrient of plant breeding for, for nutrition. That means that all the relevant centers, CIMIT that's producing wheat and maize, ERI producing rice, etc., they will add a nutrient traits, uh, adding iron or zinc to, to all of their crops and all of the varieties they develop. So that um, eventually all of the germplasm, all the varieties that go to developing countries or to you know large farm uh, owners uh, will have increased zinc, iron, provitamin A uh, contents. And back to something that Saskia was mentioning, the impact of climate, of, of increased CO2 on the levels of zinc and iron in, in the main staple grains. If you increase zinc in wheat by 40% through biofortification, you buffer the effect of CO2 increases, which is up to 17% decrease of zinc. The same thing with iron. Uh, uh, the increased CO2 levels uh, will mean that plants will produce more starch at the expense of protein <laughs> and, and minerals, and biofortification mainstream through the centers will help buffer that effect. Eric, thank you so much. So Saskia, you've heard five panelists show, uh, you know, uh, sharing their ideas of what they see as the major developments. Do you want to take a quick reflection? Yes, thank you. And um, yeah, I, I'm very pleased to hear that there is a, a alignment in what are uh, important developments and promising developments at the, uh, in, the, in the global nutrition and health um, and development community. I think um, the recognition that, uh, that we are now having a crisis in, of three forms of malnutrition, um, which are interdependent, um, I think that's an important step forward, as well as the recognition that we need a combination of interventions that we don't have silver bullets to improve food systems and to deliver um, micronutrient-specific interventions sometimes through the um, uh, universal healthcare systems. Um, so I think also that um, the, um, the recognition that we have, that it's important that we fill the data gap in micronutrients uh, status specifically in order to be able to track progress, in order to be able to inform policies and to guide uh, interventions and to target interventions. I think that's also an important um, promising development. And then, uh, as uh, Kristen was mentioning, the Nutrition for Growth Summit, which will happen later this year in Tokyo, I think that's an important platform where we can combine all this together um, and call for, um, for smart commitments uh, from uh, donors and other stakeholders, both at the level of uh, universal healthcare systems, because that's one of the platforms, as well as at the level of the food systems uh, to help mitigate these issues. Thank you very much. That was our first round with the panelists, and they kind of um, give us a picture of promising developments. In the second round, I have specific questions for each of our panelists. So let me do, let me do that, and I know that several of you would like to come in and make your own remarks. So let me come there. I'd like to begin first with Roland. And Roland, the question I have for you is, for the first time ever, the 2019 State of the World's Children Report UNICEF's flagship report chose to focus on children, food, and nutrition. What are the challenges children and their families face in micronutrient nutrition, and how are children's rights and nutrition related? We look forward to your remarks, Roland. 
mentioning from the rights of the child spoke of the need to provide children with adequate nutritious foods to combat different forms of malnutrition. And uh, on our side, we feel that that goal has not changed and that the rights-based approach remains very relevant and powerful as we try to put in place the right policies to improve children's diets. Um, so this rights-based approach therefore also underpinned the uh, State of the World Children Report you mentioned, which um, sought to, to increase our understanding around the causes and consequences of child malnutrition and uh, also to highlight what you know, governments, businesses, families, other stakeholders uh, can do. Um, so in the report, we describe that far too many children are eating too little of the food they need, such as fruits, vegetables, animal source foods, or fortified foods, and way too much of food that they don't need, for instance, unhealthy, ultra-processed foods. And that's one of the reasons why one in three children are not growing well, and hundreds of millions of children under five are continuing to suffer from micronutrient deficiencies. Um, so in the report, um, we therefore called on, on food systems to better deliver for children and to meet children's rights, um, for instance, by empowering families, children, and young people to demand nutritious foods, to drive food suppliers, to increase the supply of healthy foods, to build healthy food environments for children, especially where they eat, learn, and play. Um, and also to mobilize other systems, such as social protection and education systems, health systems, or systems, and all of that then should be underpinned by stronger data systems. So, so in the report, um, we really feel um, that the rights-based um, approach is very important for health, healthy diets. But given the changes we observe in food systems, also if we go to other rights, for instance, when we look at marketing of foods, that we also ensure that we protect children's um, rights to privacy and to protection from, um, from exploitation. So therefore, again, we feel that the rights-based approach as it comes to nutrition and micronutrients continues to be very timely. Roland, thank you so much for sharing those. I'd like to move then to Christine next. Christine, you talked about food fortification, and that has led to some of the world's greatest public health successes, such as salt iodization to improve cognitive development and anemia reduction through fortified flour. Yet consumption of fortified foods, especially by the most vulnerable, is still low. Where do you see food fortification fitting into the food systems approaches? Thank you. Well, I think the first point I would make is that, uh, to start out, is that food fortification, when it's done um, in its most effective way, it doesn't just fit into a food systems approach, but it is a food systems approach. Um, because a well-designed and well-implemented national food fortification program is, um, is embedded in the food system, and it targets a staple food vehicle that is widely consumed and is centrally processed so that it can reach um, um, the maximum number of people so that it can help all boats to rise in terms of micronutrient intake and also so that it can plug some of the gaps where food systems as they currently are are not working well for everyone and, and especially the most vulnerable. Um, we know that when 
fortification is done well, that it works. And I think the example of salt iodization is, is the best example of this. Um, you know, Roland mentioned the um, amazing reduction in, um, in iodine deficiency. Uh, the, the, the recent figures that I, um, that I found from UNICEF and the Iodine Global Network uh, showed that six billion people around the world, so that's over three quarters of the world's population, are currently consuming iodized salt, either through salt that they're buying and using in their cooking and to season their food, or through packaged foods that they're consuming that contain iodized salt. And that is, that's the driving factor behind the fact that we've seen over the last 25 years iodine deficiency, um, countries with a large high level of iodine deficiency declining from 110 countries 25 years ago to just around 20 or 25 today. So that's just, that's a massive reach and a massive impact. And we need to learn from that example um, with other staple food vehicles because we know that this works um, when it's done, when it's done well. Um, last year, um, GAIN and, and, and among other organizations published a, um, a systematic review and meta-analysis of 50 studies in low and middle income countries. And um, what we found from that systematic review was um, that we can expect, a, for example, a 34% reduction in anemia through flower fortification, thanks to improved iron stores, um, with, with women of reproductive age and pregnant women especially benefiting from that. Um, the same analysis showed a 41% reduction in neural tube defects um, due to um, the reduction in folate deficiency from fortification. Vitamin A deficiency, likewise, um, has uh, currently, it's estimated, is, is, is reducing vitamin A deficiency for approximately three, ch 3 million children under the age of nine every year. So we know that this works, um, but there's still a huge unfinished agenda on food fortification. There are more than uh, 80 countries around the world that could benefit from staple food fortification programs that don't yet have those programs in place. And then um, where fortification programs exist, um, what we're finding is that programs are performing at about 50% of where they need to be, where they could optimize their impact. So the challenge here um, is to um, integrate our food fortification efforts into an overall effort to strengthen the food control and food safety systems, and then also an all-hands-on-deck um, uh, approach to both um, supporting governments to enforce mandates, supporting the private sector to fortify, but also holding both accountable to, um, to be doing, um, to be fortifying well, and to be, um, and to be enforcing the existing uh, fortification uh, mandates and standards. Thank you very much, Christine. I imagine that the uh, summit that is taking place in Bangkok will also address these um, opportunities. Let me come to our third panelist, and that is Eric. Eric, the question or comment I have for you, biofortification. It shows great promise, we know that, in delivering a new way of reducing hidden hunger by increasing the nutritional value of crops. Where have you seen the most success with biofortification? And where do you see biofortification really showing promise? Okay, thank you for that question. That's my favorite topic, as you know. <laughs> what a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, what a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. So biofortification with micronutrients per se is not a, it's pretty young, relatively speaking. Uh, if you don't consider amino acid biofortification, QPM, 
uh, part of the movement. So despite its very young age, biofortification now has reached uh, over 40 million people uh, that are consuming and, and using biofortified crops. Uh, around 211 biofortified varieties have been released in, uh, of 11 crops have been released in over 30 countries. And uh, about 21 countries, governments have included biofortification in their uh, policy or policies or program. And the African Union will release its endorsement of biofortification in their next meeting in February, I believe. So significant prog progress has been made, so that's looking good. Uh, and you asked for an example of where things are looking even better. Well, uh, I couldn't choose really Africa or, or, or Asia, but an example that uh, is very close to my heart because I've seen uh, evidence base uh, for the evidence base for biofortification being published uh, uh, recently about the, the impact that the biofortification of, of, uh, of iron pearl millet has had on iron status, cognitive performance, and work efficiency, you know, three very key parameters for, for social development. Uh, it, it has been in India. So in India, uh, um, pearl millet has been released, but uh, over and above pearl millet with high iron content, um, India has also embraced high zinc wheat and high zinc rice in Odisha and um, the other name, the other, Bihar as well. Pearl millet has been rolled out in, in Maharashtra, and there a recent survey that I only got the uh, uh, my hands on the results of the survey of the pearl millet area in Maharashtra. Uh, results are very encouraging because uh, over 20% of all the farmers in that area are already using high iron pearl millet, one variety that was developed for that area. And over 90% of the women of, of women in childbearing age of those households are consuming the pearl millet. And the main drivers for adopting pearl millet by those households are, well, first, the, uh, the yield. You know, it's about 5 to 10% higher yielding than the other varieties. And, and a very uh, small amount of nutrition information about the importance of iron for uh, women's health, children's cognitive uh, performance. So India, I think, is, a, is a, a, a star example of where biofortification is going very well. India has its own biofortification program that it funds, but uh, of course that's mostly research. It needs more uh, uh, funding for its own uh, deployment of biofortification throughout the country so that impact will be uh, very significant. Eric, thank you very much. That's very inspiring. I think all of us are eager to know more and see further spread out. Marie, you are the um, fourth panelist, and the question I have for you is, what role does nutrition-sensitive agriculture play in reducing rates of micronutrient deficiencies? Um, so the, the, the issue of nutrition-sensitive agriculture has been now maybe it's, it's 10 years old, or uh, we've been talking about that a lot. And, and at, the, at first, we had very little evidence of the impacts of programs that had been uh, focusing on agriculture and, and with an objective or, or not on nutrition. There was not really a lot of evidence uh, that these programs did anything for nutrition. So we did um, several reviews, but the latest was a couple of years ago 
when we felt that programs actually had improved a lot. So we're reviewing here the kinds of programs that target the poorest of the poor, that are often relatively small scale, uh, that are often implemented by non-governmental institutions that, that are really targeting uh, their programs to the poorest of the poor. And in the recent waves of these programs, they had a much better understanding of what they wanted to achieve in terms of nutrition outcomes. And they all focus, I think all focused on uh, empowering, empowering women as well, because it had been shown before that if you do empower women in, in agriculture, you're more likely to have impacts on nutrition uh, of, of children and, and nutrition at the household level. So our recent review looked at all of these kinds of programs. So there are like homestead food production systems, home gardens. Uh, there's been some nutrition sensitive value chains, irrigation projects. And we, we looked at the impact of those, um, which were, as I mentioned before, really improved compared to programs before. And their evaluations were better as well. So it was a lot better, more rigorous evidence that we could review. And what we find is that, first of all, these programs all have the aim of increasing production diversity. So they want households to produce more diverse foods. They focus often on micronutrient-rich foods, green leafy vegetables, vitamin A-rich vegetables, fruit sometimes, and eggs and, and small animals. So they really aim at improving access of the, to, for the households to these more nutrient to these nutrient-rich foods. They also, as I said, most of them uh, focus on improving women's empowerment, and the objective is to improve consumption as well of these um, foods so that their diets are more diverse and that they get more micronutrients in their diets. And what we find is that with these improved programs and improved evaluation designs, we really find impacts on all of those things. We find, find impacts on production diversity, on consumption diversity, and where measured on the biomarkers uh, of vitamin A, for example, or iron. Uh, and, and so they have been eating these food and their mic micronutrient status has improved. Uh, that being said, improvements in stunting have been very difficult to achieve. And so that's because you'd need, you need a lot more than food to reduce stunting. You need the water, the clean water. You need the health services. Um, you need special food sometimes for young children. So stunting is a, is a difficult impact to achieve, and it has been achieved when programs have been overloaded with these other types of interventions to make sure that they would reach, oh, uh, they would uh, reduce stunting. So our bottom line with, with the reviewer, our recommendation is that these kinds of programs should focus on what they're good at, improve diversity in production, uh, therefore improve diversity in consumption, making sure that people not only produce more diverse uh, foods, but they also consume them, and that we focus not only on the young children, but we focus on all households of the member, all, all household members in, in, in the family, because everyone can benefit from improved diet. Why would we just focus on, on the young children? Marie, thank you very much. That was very helpful, and if anybody is interested in the review, we can help make that available. Our fifth panelist is Rob. Rob, the question I have for you is climate change will have a profound effect on our food systems and the nutritional uh, content of food, in particular micronutrient quality. Saskia alluded to that in her presentation. Can you elaborate on these challenges and what role do you see for the nutrition community having in the climate change challenges facing the world? 
Joel. And you know what I think we're really hearing here today is that there are multiple approaches to this problem and that they're all important. And at the end of the day, our goal is to make sure nobody slips through the cracks, be they urban, rural, poor, wealthy, um, anyway, um, male, female. Um, so on climate change, we can talk about, I will say something, Saskia has already covered it nicely about the direct impacts on, on concentration of nutrients. But I have to tell you that I'm almost, I would say, more concerned about the impacts of things like heat and drought and water, either too much or too little, on the effects on the food system and the agricultural driver of the food system more broadly. So I think about water a lot and things like around resilience and resilience to shocks, but many shocks are water-related, but also uh, for horticulture, 90-plus percent water, small livestock and fish, huge amount of water required, uh, or at least some water required uh, year-round. Um, uh, things like feed and dairy and poultry, all of these things are great opportunities for addressing micronutrient malnutrition, but water's key. Now, we know there's been some great studies showing that Africa's potential for irrigation has been greatly uh, it's not it's not exploited very much for sus for sustainable irrigation. So there's a, some reasons to look up uh, advances in solar make it more and more possible to be off the grid, which in some areas is important, or to sell back to the grid as they do in South Asia. Kristen mentioned the food safety connection. It's critical here because all of these things I just mentioned, they all where the food safety problems are concentrated. So. Those of us in the nutrition and micronutrients and agriculture communities have to keep thinking about that as well. So at the end of the day, I think about trying to drive affordability and availability of quality foods and, and basically an affordable quality diet. And that's what brings us to markets, which is really what I think Marie was getting to with some of her comments and, and the fact that we're already learning that the more market access you have, the less it matters what you grow it's basically having money to buy the food you want. So your choices you know, may be different from somebody who's very far removed in terms of uh, ensuring your uh, nutritional security, the household. So income poverty remains really important. And I think we have this wonderful new study from the World Bank, Harvesting Prosperity, that shows that agriculture is still four times, ag growth, four times as effective in reducing extreme poverty across the economy, rural and urban. And, and the, the more the poorer the country, the more effective. Um, on the specific pieces, um, I think uh, there are things with science that we can do to push back in that direction. And, and Harvest Plus is already doing this, showing that we can increase. But one of the most important ones to raise would be iron deficiency in rice. It's I, iron deficiency anemia is broadly contiguous with rice consumption. So we talk about empowering women, but if 50% of them are suffering from anemia, you know, we're missing a big piece of the of what we need to make that a reality. So this is why I mentioned science, because if attitudes remain, and it's not just here, it could be about heat and drought tolerance. If people refuse technologies that we can show are safe for some sort of moral uh, aversion, I don't know how, quite how to arrange it, uh, say it, it can really hold us back in this space. Um, but anyway, I, I still remain really optimistic uh, that, that we have, we are showing, and who told us the story about um, Eric, the story about the pearl millet? That's wonderful. 
And that's that idea of mainstreaming, which is, I think we really need to embrace across the CG system and through national uh, programs and seed systems. Sorry to go on so long, but thank you. Rob, so inspiring and connecting and uh, the dots together and pulling the stories together. I won't dare to summarize what our panelists have said because they've been so eloquent. They've covered a range of issues, range of options, and have also inspired us all. What I would like to do is open up for a Q&A session, uh, discussion session with you in the room as well as online. Ideally, we'll be able to do two rounds, and the panelists have promised that they'll hear from you and be brief in their responses so we can hear from more from you. Can I have a show of hands in the room so I know where to bring mics? And if not, I will give the panelists a chance to also reflect on each other. Let me begin with Julie Howard here. And uh, the mic, as the mic comes to you, please tell us who you are uh, and uh, give your intervention. Great. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'm Julie Howard. I'm a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And thank you very much for this discussion. Um, before I was at CSIS, I worked with Rob and others at USAID. And I have to say, you know, from my time there, I'm sort of haunted uh, by the experience of Guatemala, yeah, which doing very, very well in exporting vegetables uh, to, to the U.S. and has among the, the worst malnutrition indicators uh, in, in the world, not just in, in the hemisphere. Uh, and it's just, you know, the rice and beans culture, uh, corn, corn and beans culture, so, so ingrained. So I, we really haven't heard very much about behavior change on this panel. So I'd love to have your reflections. Uh, the, the other thing that haunts me that that's, that's, that's related is as income rises, uh, we have more and more evidence that you know, what people are buying are not necessarily you know, more diverse foods, fruits and vegetables, fortified foods, but they're buying you know, the Cheeto equivalent. Yeah, I love Cheetos, by the way. <laughs> So, you know, so what's the role of the private sector and what's the role of behavior change? So those two things that I haven't really heard enough of from the panel. Thank you. Julie, excellent points. Behavior change, role of private sector. There was a gentleman right next to you. Uh, if you can pass the mic there. And now, panelists, please take notes. Thanks very much. My name is Don Friend. I'm a National Academy of Sciences Jefferson Science Fellow serving in the Office of Global Climate Change at USAID. And uh, Rob, specifically for you, I'm, I'm curious, when you, when you spoke the first time, you mentioned rural poor, but you did not say urban poor. So I'm curious, is this only a, a rural issue or is this simply AID's focus mostly on rural environments? Because uh, in my experience, we, we see malnutrition. If, if anything, it's growing even worse in urban areas, particularly as those expand. And uh, if you could, if the whole panel could think about and maybe address tackling the coming flood, uh, no pun intended, of climate refugees who are going to be moving away from coastlines, coming to secondary and tertiary cities and big cities. and how are we going to address this growing huge slums? Thank you. Thank you very much. Urban poor, climate refugees, I hope several panelists will reflect on that. Anybody else in the room who wishes to make any, um, I uh, Aulo, I see Aulo up there. Um, Pamela, will you pass him the mic? And then, yeah, somebody at the back too. Thank you. Uh, this is Aulo Jelly from, from IFPRI. Um, I also have a haunting question, and it's to do with maybe something that we haven't really discussed, but it's really the political economy or the politics. 
Um, so like two weeks ago, the US government decided in one fell swoop to roll back regulation on school lunches. So basically, you know, stopping um, the, the fresh foods and vegetables that could potentially improve the diets of you know, 30 million children uh, every day who receive a school lunch. So this is in the context of a country that has 15 million obese and overweight kids. So what can we do? You know, we, science is great, but what do we do in the face of these kind of political polit bad policies or bad politics? Thank you. Thank you, Aulo, for that easy question. <laughs> um, I think, Julie, you had your hand up at the back. Thank you, Julie Kurtz, a research analyst at IFPRI. Uh, I was wondering, a little bit building on Julie's question about behavior change and wondering about the role of the culinary arts um, and thinking about how uh, the diversity of food that we want to eat um, how that contributes to taste, and wondering too about biofortification, if there's this tension between um, using a, a very simple and scalable strategy to address uh, micronutrient deficiencies, but maybe it focuses away from the kind of behavior change of diversification of diets um, and some of the opportunities that might be available in culinary strategies. And I was thinking, just even the example of salt being one of the most effective forms of biofortification, and partly because it makes food taste good. So if you could just speak to, a little bit to culinary arts. Thank you very much. I'll come to the online uh, questions in the next round, but I'd like the panelists to briefly pick up any of the questions they wish to. I know we won't be able to address them all, so you have my permission to be selective. And Roland, would you like to come in first? My read is actually that as a nutrition community, we um, for a long time focused perhaps exclusively on aspects related to behavior change when it comes to the quality of diets of children. And I think it's only recently that we're understanding that those efforts on behavior change need to be coupled with issues related to the convenience of food, the availability of food, also the cultural factors, the social aspirations. So um, um, I think what's really needed is to be able to put all these things together so that um, you know, these foods are affordable and accessible, um, including in cases as uh, Julie were describing in, in Guatemala, where these foods may be grown but are then, um, then exported. Um, you know, the, the question on the, the um, political economy, um, I'm not sure that I have a, an answer um, other than that I feel um, a lot of times but they're indeed hugely political problems and I think our responsibility therefore is to make nutrition more political to uh, therefore also garner the commitments we need by leaders, by governments, by industry um, such as in efforts, uh, such as nutrition for growth. Roland, thank you. Let me walk down the panel this way and the next time I'll go the other way. Uh, Marie? I don't want to steal the question on Guatemala from Eric, but um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll s we still share uh, a lot of interest on, on Guatemala. Um, I have lived there for six years in the 90s, and I was also incredibly struck by 
the level of stunting. I was tall there, and and you know all uh, <laughs> only time in my life. Every child was. I mean, communities were so stunted, and and it's not. It was not just in the mountains and the poor areas. There definitely is an intergenerational effect of poverty and malnutrition of the mother having small children, and that's never going away because there that stunting is not going away. It takes many generations to for them to catch up. Another hypothesis that I, uh, has not really been verified, certainly not by me, and I don't know if, if Eric, you know more about it, but I, I suspect that aflatoxin is possibly a real problem there because they eat maize, 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 and if they have a little money, they'll add some frijoles, but they really eat an incredible amount of maize, and it's, it's possible that uh, the maize is contaminated and that it, it affects their, um, their growth. And the other thing that I've noticed is that whenever the, even the kind of more uh, richer people that lived in, in, in the mountains of Guatemala, uh, even with greater income, they still lived in terrible conditions. They had no water, they, they lived in dirt, I mean, the, the environment was really, really contaminated. And that was not changing very fast. And so. You know, th this is really a whole other situation that you find there, and, and it's inequalities and inequity, and, and it's, uh, as I mentioned, the intergenerational transmission of, of poverty and malnutrition. Uh, but you can continue on, on and add things. Um, <laughs> you are the expert, after all. Um, the, uh, the BCC, uh, I also agreed with uh, the comment made by Roland on Oh, sorry. I, I also agree, agree with the, the comment made by Roland on BCC that we have focused on the first thousand days, but mostly on the child in the first thousand days with all of our BCC. We have focused on infant and young child feeding practices. We have indicators to measure and we target those indicators. We want to improve those indicators so all of the, the communication material is done around promoting uh, behaviors that are related to these indicators that we can measure. And now we're talking about diets, diets of the whole family. We're talking about changing the, the, the way people think about food, what they purchase, and what they eat, and the family diet. And we really don't have the BCC materials yet. And I think we're going to have to go way beyond interpersonal personal BCC and, and try to use more dramatic techniques like those used by the private sector to deal with, with uh, changing behaviors. It's a long, long Question? Okay, so I will not belabor on Guatemala because uh, yeah, Marif said most of what is known about the, the determinants of the problem and the fact that those haven't been adequately addressed to reduce the 50% prevalence of uh, stunting that affects children in Guatemala. Uh, I, I would like to, uh, on the other hand, uh, address a question about biofortification not addressing the dietary di diversity uh, and biofortification has been addressed you know one crop at a time because the generation of evidence requires that you know we generate evidence one crop at a time but we are now at a stage where we're testing multiple crops being used by the same population in India in a, a small town in uh, in Mandapali uh, Andhra Pradesh where we were using a pretty attractive menu of of at least 20 recipes made with orange flesh sweet potato um, high iron pearl millet and high zinc wheat flour this is whole wheat flour which is what we 
uh, encouraged, not ultra-refined flour. And, and, and that's, those are the first steps towards encouraging uh, using what you already consume uh, to, to, to increase the diversity and the nutrient, the nutrient density of the diet. Of course, uh, dietary diversity is the gold standard that we should all uh, aim for, but uh, we don't, and we don't discourage it. It's just not our main role to, to provide the, you know, really large uh, resources required to, for families to have access to diverse diet every day, you know, through different seasons all the time. So that would be my take on how biofortification uh, improves variety diversity, although not necessarily dietary diversity. Thank you. Saskia, would you like to come in on? Yes, thank you. I think um, also to come back to this uh, this question, what about biofortification? You know, if we, if we focus on biofortification, don't we lose the focus then on behavioral change? And I think, um, as was explained before, we have people here representing different uh, interest groups. I think um, from the Micronutrients Forum's perspective, when we when we look at the issue, we are very happy to see that there is an integration actually now of approaches across the food systems with combination in combination with um, um, health care systems. Um, and that it doesn't mean that if you focus on one intervention that you dismiss the, uh, the other. I think it's an, uh, we have gained insights that just focusing on one single silver bullet is not helpful. And in some situations, um, even you know, in some situations, just focusing on behavioral change will also not um, lead to the required outcomes. I think women empowerment has not been mentioned, but we know, uh, particularly for um, um, nutrition-sensitive agriculture, that that is an important element to make sure that um, when income increases, that it is being spent uh, on feeding the families rather than on other um, activities. Um, and I also want to make a comment on the culinary arts. I thought it was a very nice question. Um, and yes, it is important. And what we have seen in, in the global nutrition community is an increasing involvement and uh, engagement of chefs that um, that are, I think, the excellent uh, uh, people in between, you know, us scientists and the public to demonstrate how a healthy, sustainable diet actually uh, looks like. And at the upcoming um, events in March, we will also have a participation of the uh, Chef's Manifesto. This is a, you know, a selection of, uh, of world chefs who have um, uh, gathered behind the SDG2 calls and really want to contribute from their perspectives towards uh, eliminating all forms of malnutrition. And they will come there to demonstrate uh, also to the participants how that looks like. So thank you. Rob, you next. Um, thanks, Rajul. Just a few quick comments on the questions. Rural, urban. Um, generally speaking, urban poverty and undernutrition Rural poverty and undernutrition, extreme poverty and undernutrition, are worse than in urban settings. The advantage, the, the advantage of being an urban dweller in Asia is a little less than in Africa. In Africa, it's really concentrated in the rural areas. I think the challenge here, um, Don, is the, the 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 theory of change to help these people. Is it a matter of safety nets? Maybe it's a matter of market infrastructure. Maybe it's a matter of clean water. But it's it's, it's not that people in agriculture don't care about it at all. And in fact, we've, as we said, this agriculture growth has a very desirable effect of impacting incomes across the economy, partly because it makes food cheaper and more affordable for the very poor. And the poorer you are, the more you spend of your meager income on food. So it's, we're not, I, I, I certainly don't want to ignore that, 
but it, the opportunity using agriculture perhaps most directly is to harness rural communities in providing better, more affordable diets for everyone of low income, regardless of where they are. Um, you know, Julie, on the private sector, I think that just meshes completely with the comment on policy. Um, because, you know, private goods are tricky to affect with public investment other than policy. I mean, there may be some. I think there's, you know, bully pulpits and messaging and, and, and such. But it does seem like that's an area where um, uh, policy would be very exciting to explore. Um, I think on behavior change, what I get excited about is co-location or at least, you know, having our our, our nutrition and health programs really messaging about foods. Uh, I don't know about turning agriculturalists into nutrition advisors, but there's ways that we can, I think, uh, uh, share messaging in ways that provide synergies for all the outcomes we're working for. And finally, on the behavior change, and not quite on the culinary arts, I think what we do see is diversification as being a, a really important opportunity for smallholder incomes in ways that can also make a better market basket more affordable and perhaps more tasty and, and exciting and interesting. You know, if we think about horticultural crops, or the, but these are all very knowledge intensive and they're, uh, but they're also employment intensive. So, you know, there's challenges, but many opportunities. Okay, so I'm trying to think of what I can say that hasn't already been said, um, but I would um, first, I think my colleagues have said very well, um, expressed that, that fortification, focusing on staple foods, it's not inconsistent with dietary diversity. In fact, the two are, um, can, can be used together. A lot of the staple foods that are fortified are paired with a diversity of other ingredients and can be. Um, so I think that, I think that um, they're certainly not mutually exclusive approaches. Um, and then I would say in addition to behavior change, I think there's a whole universe of other interventions that are needed to make nutritious food more available and more affordable to the poorest and most vulnerable. And that can range from um, the way that nutritious food is packaged and sold. Is it, is it, is it, is it packaged in, in such a way that, um, that it's affordable to, um, to, to, to low-income um, people? Uh, the state of the cold chain so that nutritious food can can move to where it's needed and where it's not available. Uh, the issue of food loss and food waste as well and how, how, how are nutrients being lost um, because of the, the amount of food that's, that's spoiling before um, people can consume it. So these are all um, also issues that are relevant to, um, to, to micronutrient malnutrition that also that also need to be addressed. And then, of course, the businesses that are um, producing nutritious food, do the small and medium enterprises that are, that are serving the low-income consumer, do they have access to the finance that they need to grow their businesses as well? So these are all, all important things to look at. Thank you very much to all our panelists. They've been remarkably disciplined uh, and brief in their responses that allow us to take another round. Um, let me first take the online questions and then I'll come back to the room if any of you have any questions. And I warn you, if you don't have, I have one or two questions and I'm not sure you want me to take them. So let me start. Lucy, online questions, please. Sure. So we have three here. Um, Colin Shariot, a farmer in Nairobi, Kenya. Currently, there is a massive desert locust attack in Kenya and Ethiopia. What do you think this means for micronutrients and wider food security in these areas, which are already facing food insecurity? 
Second one is Santosh Dehal from Nepal. What role does the non-government development sector play in strengthening the national food control agencies and ultimately national food fortification programs? And the third one is Mahesh Chandler from ICAR Indian Veterinary and Research Institute, India. How does biofortification relate with biodiversity? Some criticize it for reduced biodiversity. Additionally, how does biofortification via breeding relate with GMOs? Thanks. Excellent questions. I'm sure panelists have made note of that. Let me see if there are any questions in the room or any comments in the room before I come back here. Okay, then can I address that in the second round? Am I seeing, Peter, am I seeing your hand up? Um, there's Peter Goldstein right here in the front. Hi, uh, Peter Goldstein from Harvest Plus. This is a big question, but um, the Nutrition for Growth Summit was mentioned at the end of this year, and I was wondering from a micronutrient point of view, if everybody could ask what would be one thing that they would hope to see come out of that summit? Peter, thank you very much. Um, let me just pose my two questions on the table and then see if anyone wants to react to them. Uh, Rob, I was very much struck by the water issue that you raised, and I make the connection to affordable diets because I do wonder if we go further down the road of water scarcity and pricing, what will that do to diets and affordability? And Marie, I don't know if you want to comment on the adolescent uh, girls because I know you'd done some work earlier and adolescents has been brought up as the next group to look more into. So why don't I begin with the reverse order of Christine and going this way. And colleagues, at 1.40, I want to give all of you a chance to do your 30-second message. For anybody who really wants to only remember 30 seconds of this event, what is a 30-second message? So 10 minutes at most. And Christine? OK, so I get my pick of questions this time. Um, I think to speak to what does, what's the role of non-governmental organizations in strengthening national food fortification programs, I think that's a great question. Um, there's a, I think there's a very important role for, for non-governmental organizations in holding governments to account for the enforcement of fortification mandates and fortification standards. The issue of fortification quality is, is one that's really undermining the effectiveness of fortification in many places. And um, more attention to that is really needed. And we've done some work um, in Kenya and, and, and in other countries as well, for example, with the uh, Spina Bifida and Hydrocephalus Association. Um, this is an, uh, a local organization of parents and, and, and adult children, or adult, um, adult, uh, adults who have grown up um, with Spina Bifida and now are engaging in advocacy for fortification and, and talking with politicians in country about the importance of fortification because it can prevent these types of, um, of, of birth defects that really have um, really um, drastic effects on the quality of life for, for parents um, and for families um, and of course for the children um, that are born with these birth defects. So, um, and so I think I think much more attention also um, consumer associations and consumer rights groups as well um, are starting to get more involved in this area and I think um, I think that's a really positive development and then in terms of n for g and what we would hope to see come out I think 
um, I would really like to see a stronger participation by countries coming um, coming to N4G, um, implementing countries and making commitments um, around what they what they plan to do to um, to fight micronutrient uh, deficiency and and to improve nutrition in their countries and sharing their plans and their strategies and their commitments and then would like to see then donors um, getting behind those commitments. Um, at the Fortification Summit, we've got um, now government ministers from seven countries coming to participate, um, and I think that's, I'm hoping that that's an indication of then. Um, we're hoping this will be a, sort of a springboard that will um, continue engagement throughout the year and, and also at, including at the Nutrition for Growth Summit. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you. Um, let's see. Um, Desert locust is a really tough one. I really don't think that there's much good that can come from that other than maybe we can learn how to be better prepared. Um, uh, this is one of these problems that's cyclical and there's a great interest and then if we don't have any attacks for a few years, it sort of peters out. I've seen it over about 40 years. So um, I don't have a good answer for our friend in Nairobi. Um, on food fortification, it's not my area. But I have a comment to make, and that is we're seeing some really exciting data, maybe from Derek Hetty here at IFPRI, I'm not sure, about some connection between stunting rates and affordability of fortified infant cereals. It seems, and yet we know that Will Masters did that study up in Malawi where they looked at the aflatoxin rates were sky high, the fortifications, as has been mentioned, was all over the map in terms of the, the fidelity and quality. Is that something we could tackle? It, you know, could we do the math on that, Rajul, and figure out how many kids we could help by really focusing in to help countries ensure that fortified infant cereals delivered what they said they would and that they were of the standards and, and affordable to really get at that? And I think that would, you know, given how much work women shoulder in the households, I think these kinds of you know, having confidence in those tools, not at all, you know, trying to steer people from breastfeeding. This is for, you know, later on. But anyway, it's a question. Um, breeding and biotech, I mean, I don't, I think that, I don't think this is about a trade-off with biodiversity. And we, and we have great ex situ conservation strategies in place to make sure that farmer varieties are conserved and explored and, and utilized in many cases. But um, there's a lot we can do by putting genes together that aren't in one variety, and in some cases pulling in, for example in rice, pulling in a gene from maize to confer uh, vitamin A, provitamin A content. So I think there's two ways you can look at this, but I think we have safeguards in place to protect biodiversity. I'll stop there. So yes, thank you. On the question from the poll on the role that NGOs um, um, can play, I think uh, NGOs can play an important role to create demand for healthy diets all throughout, uh, from the household level all the way up to the, the government level, and um, and thereby creating a need for uh, regulations when necessary, um, as well as delivering interventions um, that have you know are are proven to be effective through their uh, programs. And, and I think when it comes to um, our hopes for the Nutrition for Growth Summit, to add on what Kristen already said, I think this is an, a unique opportunity uh, this year. We have 10 more years to go until 2030 um, when we are supposed to meet the SDG goals. Um, it's an, a unique 
opportunity to now come forward with smart uh, commitments. I think um, there is a stronger um, call and need to, for integrated solutions. We shouldn't forget about the unfinished agenda of some of those these evidence-based interventions that fit um, in uh, food, uh, food systems approaches that are actually an essential part of food systems approaches, as well as fit in universal healthcare approaches. And we should um, address the data gap, uh, because without data, we are not able to um, monitor progress and to, uh, to track progress, sorry, and to, um, to target uh, interventions effectively. Thank you. Do we have time? Okay, well, I'll... Uh, uh, Robert already addressed uh, a little bit of the question on biofortification and biodiversity. So I will just uh, say that biodiversity is more than plant diversity. Uh, biodiversity means the number of bird species, the number of insect species as well. And biofortified varieties not only add to the uh, number of varieties, they don't require more insecticides that would kill off insects or birds and you know disrupt the, the, the food chain that way. Um, Biofortified varieties um, are varieties that are uh, drought tolerant, you know, uh, resistant, uh, resistant to pests, and so they would require the same or less inputs uh, that would harm the environment and the biodiversity around the, the cropping systems. The, I will not address the refugee question. It's really not <laughs> a topic that I handle, but certainly, I can imagine what it will do to urban areas, and urban areas are really, for the urban poor, uh, they are really facing the worst of all worlds. Um, we haven't talked a lot about the problem of overweight and obesity, and we haven't talked either uh, much either about the cost of food. You just mentioned, uh, uh, but the, the issues in urban areas are that people are exposed to a world uh, that is very different, uh, the mo modernization of food systems and all of the uh, supermarkets and, and the combination of them continuing some of their traditional diet but adding to it uh, all of the fast food and the, and the not necessarily healthy and certainly not necessarily food, uh, safe uh, street foods as well. Um, so they're facing these problems and it's, it's immediately uh, reflected in the fact that they, there is a lot of, of co-occurrence of, of undernutrition, micronutrient deficiencies and overweight and obesity. It always starts in women in urban areas all around the world. Africa is not paying attention, but with the, with the rapid urbanization that will happen in the next uh, couple of decades in, in Africa, it will get worse. And the companies, the, the, the private sector companies that are invading all of these countries really know how to do this, and it will happen a lot faster than it has in other regions of the world. In Latin America, it took 20 years, but now you can be sure that the, indus the industries will be there, the, 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 food, the food industry will be there and will provide cheap ultra-processed food that's very liked by people that taste good, just like in the U.S., uh, but th it will be combining with still serious problems of undernutrition as well. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not responding to the question about, uh, about refugees, but if we put on, on top of that refugees that arrive in this environment and that have to look for very cheap food and don't have access, to whatever they would like to eat that will really compound all of the problems. Marie, let me call on Roland for any brief uh, responses. Yeah, I mean, with regards to the role of NGOs and civil society, I do think also that they have a very important role, and specifically also to 
create demand for the right government policies, um, be it on mandatory food fortification, knowing that many countries have all the right, uh, um, uh, have the right environment, but these policies are not yet in place, or also to enact other policies, such as with regard to the prevention of opioid and obesity. Um, secondly, with regard to nutrition for growth, I think one uh, success factor will be to unlock domestic um, investments, uh, be it on the integration of interventions in um, health systems uh, to uh, uh, implement food system based interventions such as fortification and to improve diets of children, or also to put in place the right measures to protect uh, the quality of diets in, in emergencies. So again, this uh, domestic investment piece um, is uh, going to be a uh, key to the success of NPG and for also the micronutrient work. Roland, thank you. Before I call on the panelists to give us the 30-second tweetable message, let me say two things. One, I think Saskia, all of us want to be in Bangkok with you at this uh, conference. Such a rich issues that have been raised here, such ideas that have been raised here, so many different dialogues and options and so forth. I think all of us are very excited by this forum and uh, by the uh, conference and what will be happening there alongside the Food Fortification Summit. So seven days in Bangkok sounds very exciting to us all. Second thing I'd like to say is a very big thank you to my colleague Ainsley, uh, Ainsley Morris. She is the one who has helped pull together this panel and Ainsley done a magnificent job. Thank you so much. So let me now come to our panelists. I will start this way. I will give Saskia the final word. So I take Christine, Rob, and then Roland, Eric, Marie, and Saskia. Well, I would just encourage everyone, um, echoing what Rajul has said, um, encourage everyone to join us in Bangkok for the second global summit on food fortification and the micronutrient forum. Um, the the summit um, is, is the event I'm most closely um, involved in. and. Um, we will, we're really prioritizing participation by governments. Um, we have delegates that will be coming from um, 50 country governments and high-level representation from, um, from eight countries. And we really hope that this will be um, an opportunity to really start the conversation around um, food fortification um, and uh, including um, biofortification as well. And, um, and what, how we can use upcoming moments like Nutrition for Growth and the uh, Food Systems Summit that's coming up next year as well. So, um, so look forward to seeing many of you there. Amazing advertisement in 30 seconds. <laughs> Rob. Jewel, I'm bullish about water and small-scale irrigation, including in sub-Saharan Africa, so I, we can talk more about that another time. I think we have to keep the human face on this issue. We've all seen the picture of the cousin that moved from Guatemala to America and comes back and she's twice as tall as her other cousin who's a year or two older than she is. The other thing is I think uh, we need to, uh, the, uh, I think Eric mentioned the cognitive development issue. That is so compelling and we need to be able to talk about it, obviously in respectful ways, but to make this really a human justice issue. Um, I, I think in that regard, being able to characterize the scale of the problem and not always say we estimate two billion people. How about let's get science going on diagnostics too. I talked about it with respect to heat and drought and micronutrient content, but diagnostics that could help us really nail this issue and speak about it in a really rigorously, statistically robust way would be very, very welcome. Thank you all. Thank you, Rob. 
Roland. Um, yes, I think what we've heard is that many efforts that aim to transform food systems will benefit the entire population, including children. But uh, I think we also need to be aware that children do have special needs and vulnerabilities, and that therefore they may, in certain instances, uh, require special consideration in our discussions on, on food systems. In this context, I do think that um, looking at uh, vitamins and minerals as a key marker of diet quality remains incredibly relevant, especially also, and as we've heard, we grapple with uh, drivers such as climate change and also something we haven't discussed so much in the panel, but also the increasing number and complexities of uh, humanitarian emergencies and that are disrupting food systems and are also endangering the quality of diets and the nutritional status of older populations, including children. Thank you, Ro Roland. Eric? Microphone. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I want to end by saying that there is no silver bullet, that we all need to work together and complement each other at the country level, that we need to do things better. In, for example, food fortification, we need to promote whole wheat grain fortification. When we promote uh, salt iodization, why don't we also promote lowering the intake of sodium? You know, double, double uh, duty actions. Uh, so we have the opportunity to, to work that way, and we should do more of that together. And uh, as far as biofortification is concerned, uh, let's just let the plants do the work, and farmers will decide. Um, I'm going to focus on a small point here. Um, the loss of uh, iron and zinc, uh, for example, that was mentioned in, in uh, staple crops is indeed disconcerting. But I think food systems have to provide other foods that are much more, much richer naturally in iron and zinc that is also more bioavailable. So I don't think we should be so concerned about the loss of nutrient in, in, in crops, and yes, biofortification can help fill the gap, but there are other foods that people just don't have access that are much richer in, in bioavailable iron and zinc, and that's what the food system should help make those foods more accessible and affordable. Thank you. Saskia, you have the final word. Yes, thank you. So there's very little I can add. I think um, it's um, important that we realize now that we have a unique opportunity um, to tackle all forms of malnutrition if we are able to work more together and align and bring different stakeholders um, to the table and we owe that not only for ourselves but also I think for you know our children and our future the future generations of this world so I like the the human face of this uh, um, of these issues that we shouldn't forget about it and we have an opportunity in uh, next month in Bangkok and in the upcoming advocacy events the nutrition for growth there's also a summit uh, uh, world, uh, on world food systems uh, next year in 2021, where we can uh, bring this uh, bring this up again, discuss this again, and uh, come up with um, with commitments. And would like like to finally end with a big thank you for everyone here and also the people in the panel for participating, as well as to IFRI for hosting us and for co-organizing it and for sponsoring the event. And I would like to also briefly mention a few of our other major sponsors of the uh, Micronutrients Forum, which are which are USAID. Uh, the Bill Melinda Gates Foundation uh, and Kirk Humanitarian, as, as well as many others, that um, that make this possible. Because I think we shouldn't forget that it's important work what they deliver. So thank you. Thank you very much. Please join me in thanking all our panelists and Roland. <laughs> <laughs>